Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And I wanted to delve into the history of a town that I have not done before. And that is the history of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I found this really great reference on the early pioneer settlement years and how Grand Rapids was established. So I wanted to read some of that story to you today and go back into the settlement years of Grand Rapids, Michigan. So come along and join me. So the book that I'm going to be referencing today is called Historic Michigan Land of the Great Lakes, Volume 3. And it's dedicated to Kent County, Michigan in this volume. And it was published in 1926. And in the chapter that describes the founding of the city of Grand Rapids, it begins in the year 1830, a traveler down the valley of the Grand River, reaching the vicinity of the rapids, had before him a beautiful and to the one seeking a new home, an inviting view, and must have been greatly impressed with the wild and romantic scenery. Through the valley flows the Grand River, which rises in Jackson County, about 110 miles southeast of the present city of Grand Rapids, taking a course north of west. When within six or seven miles of the rapids, it flows almost due northwest to a point about six miles north from the city where it bears to the west and then again to the south to the foot of the rapids where it takes a southwesterly direction for a distance of six miles near the site of the town of Granville. There it resumes its northwesterly course to its mouth at Grand Haven on the shore of Lake Michigan in Ottawa County, a distance from Grand Rapids as the crow flies of about 30 miles and 40 miles following the river's course. The valley at the rapids is about one and a half miles wide. On both sides are hills approximately 100 feet in height. On the west side, these hills are about a mile back from the river. On the east side, the distances vary from a few rods to three quarters of a mile. From the river to the hills on the west and land is but a few feet above the river at normal stage. The commanding eminence on the east side was a sand bluff with a steep western face. Its base, at an average distance from the river of about eight or nine hundred feet and extending from what is now Colebrook Street on the north point to a point beyond Fulton Street on the south, a distance of one and a half miles with a maximum elevation of 160 feet above the bed of a river. An ideal spot for the location of a town, so at least thought Lewis Campow. This man had spent many years living and trading with the Indians of the southwest part of Michigan, and since 1827 had been operating a trading post at this point. Campow, being present when the government survey of the lands thrown open to settlement on the south side of the river was made, realized the advantages offered and in 1831 entered his claim covering the lands now bounded by Bridge Street on the north and Division on the east, Fulton Street on the south, and the river on the west. 
Campau was illiterate, had a poor command of English, and was anxious that Americans should become interested in his new project, and for this reason, strongly urged Joel Guild, who had left New York State with a colony of 63 persons intending to make a settlement in Ionia, to abandon the latter and throw his fortunes in with those of the proposed settlement at the Rapids. Guild was convinced and became a resident of the locality, active in all that pertained to the advancement and good of the place. The year of Guild's arrival, 1832, Campau platted a portion of his claim into the town, into blocks, lots, and streets. And from there, these two events, dates, began the beginning of the building of the city of Grand Rapids. The land so plowed is bounded by a line running midway between Pearl and Lyon on the north, Division on the east, and Fulton on the south, and the river on the west. Through the obstinacy of Campau, while illiterate, a man of strong will and Brooking no opposition, Monroe Street owes this irregular direction, as it was he who insisted that the street should follow the Indian Trail, which accounts for the diagonal street pattern of the city lying between Division, Monroe, and Market Street. So that gives you a little bit of the insight into the two early settlers that had a an important role in platting and establishing the early village of Grand Rapids, which became ultimately the city of Grand Rapids that we know it today. Now, lumber for houses was obtainable in small quantities at the sawmill belonging to the Baptist Mission on the west side. So once they had established the mill and that was available, the demand for labor became great, and manual labor it was along with mechanics of all kinds, because when they're building houses and you're building mills, you need people that understand mechanical as well. A good class of settlers began coming in, and it was a common impression prevailing upon the more recent generations that early settlers were people of little or no education, caring little and concerning themselves with less about other matters, but the opposite was the truth. Many were quite educated, coming from the East. Men and women of more or less good education and a much of a feeling of good sentiment existed in the earliest times, and they were very much in favor of educational institutions being established in their new communities. Now, there had been two missions established in this area early on. The first was a Baptist mission that had been established in 1826, and there was another that followed that was established by the Catholics in 1833. Both had maintained schools and church services, mostly for the benefit of the Native Americans. The Baptist Mission was located on the west side of the river, and two blockhouses had been erected by a man named McCoy and another named Slater, both of whom were Baptist ministers. The Catholic mission were buildings that were located further south near the west end of Pearl Street, uh, near the bridge in that location. In the spring of 1834, the trading post at the rapids of the Grand River, which for years had been the meeting place of the traders and their customers, the Native Americans had developed into a white settlement, was a population of 
20 men and many with families. And the last survivor of those early days of the establishment of Grand Rapids was Robert Barr, and he passed away in 1910 at the age of 99. The early streets of Grand Rapids at that time were really the footpath trails of the Native Americans. Gradually, more streets were developed, and in 1832, a post office was established on the west side of the river, and the first postmaster was Leonard Slater. In 1834, on account of uh, difficulty in crossing the river, a branch office was established on the east side in the home of Joel Guild. In those days, postage on letters ranged from 12 and a half to 25 cents, depending on the distance of destination and the weight. Guild's house was located on the present site of the Grand Rapids National Bank. Now, remember, this publication was printed in 1926, so that probably is not the same location anymore, and probably the name of the bank has changed. It is noted that at that time, there were more than a dozen different newspapers that were received at the post office for distribution to subscribers. So before a village or city would establish their own newspapers in their own community, oftentimes they received subscriptions from newspapers from the East Coast, for example. So you might have had somebody receiving a subscription of the New York Times and or the Boston Herald or something like that, and they would have uh, had several copies arriving at the uh, post office being distributed to the subscribers. So a lot of times that was what uh, people were paying for in their mail to bring news from the East Coast or from Detroit. By 1835, there were many settlers that established themselves in the village, making up a lot of the names of the streets and the community uh, pioneers that were noted for establishing a lot of the early settlement in Grand Rapids. Uh, Porter Reed came to the area in 1833, and he was the first settler to locate a home on the banks of Reed's Lake, and for that reason, the lake was named after him. The Reverend Andreas Viskoski came to take charge of the Catholic mission, succeeding Father Borrega. Here, he lived for the following 17 years and became known as one of the most energetic and esteemed citizens of the growing village. In that same year, Lucius Lyons settled in the village and became one of Michigan's prominent men and one of the first two United States senators to represent the state in Congress. Julius C. Abel opened his law office in the village that same year and afterwards was elected a judge. The first school district was established at that time with the boundaries uh, being established and there's a lot of details here about the sections and townships of the various uh, boundaries of the school districts. But you can hear at this point that there was a growing community that was becoming more than just the typical Michigan community. This was one of the larger boom towns on the western side of Michigan, which is why Grand Rapids is one of the larger cities on the western side of the state of Michigan to this day. And like many communities, they established a lot of early mills. One of the companies that established a mill race was called the Kent Company, and it was composed of Lucius Lyon and a, a man named Sargent and other associates, and they constructed a mill race from the head of the present canal on the east side of the site to the old Valley City Mills. 
The following year, they established a large mill, which became known locally as the Big Mill, for the manufacture of flour. At the close of 1835, the village of Grand Rapids was able to boast of 13 framed dwellings. Now, the distinction of that is quite important because the early pioneers built log cabins. And when they started transitioning into becoming more of a organized city, they started building framed houses. And the framed houses, of course, were made possible by the lumber mills. So 1835, Grand Rapids had 13 framed dwellings. And that put them ahead of a lot of other western cities of the time. And right around that time, Myron Hillsdale built the National Hotel, which was a prominent hotel in the early part of the village history. And by this time, the city of Grand Rapids was starting to get noticed by others outside of the area. And the settlement had shown a lot of growth Prior to this, but because it began to get noticed from the outside world, more so than other towns and villages, it actually saw a continuation of growth. And so the permanent improvement of many streets did not begin until 1847. But after that, there was a lot of uh, growth and development further of the city with a lot of new settlers coming in. And one of those settlers that came in in the second wave around the 1840s was a man named John Ball. And perhaps none is more remembered today in the history of Grand Rapids than he is. He came from Hebron, New Hampshire, and he devoted his splendid talents and energy to the upbuilding of the town. The first shoemakers of the village were Maxine and John Ringuet, who settled in Grab Rapids in 1836. And at first, there was no custom enough to give them steady employment. And in the summer, they were engaged in the river work and did other work that they could find. Subsequently, they were engaged in the boot and shoe trade on Monroe Street for many years. John W. Pierce opened a bookstore on the northeast corner of Kent, which was now Bond Street, and Bronson, which was now Crescent Street, where he remained in that business until 1844, when he opened a general store on the corner of Canal and Erie Street. The names of Stocking and Turner will always be household names in the early pioneer history of Grand Rapids, and the names also adorn streets in Grand Rapids to this day. And the reason is, is they were early merchants that everybody so much depended upon in those early days. On the opposite corner from the National Hotel was kept a school in a barn built of boards set up endwise, the floor being rough boards loosely laid. The teacher was Miss Sophia Page. During that year and the following, two schools were in operation in the National Hotel, for the boys taught by Daniel Smith and the other for the girls taught by Mary Hinsdale. The year preceding the first school district had been organized as noted before. In 1836, the state legislator passed an act establishing a state road from Granville to the village of Allegan and from Bronson, which was later named Kalamazoo, by way of Middleville 
in Berry County to Granville from Pawpaw up to Grand Rapids as well, and then Middle Village to Robinson's Trading Post and from Granville to the mouth of the North Black River. And in 1837, the village entered into a new era as it established its first newspaper in the village of Grand Rapids, and it was called the Grand Rapids Times. And the owner and editor was George Patterson, who was a practical printer, and its contributors consisted of such talented citizens as Charles W. Walker, Sylvester Granger, and Alfred D. Rathbone. The paper and ink had to be brought a long distance, and there were few mails in terms of mailing of the paper at that time. And in spite of the fact, it was doubtful if the community was sufficient size to warrant the undertaking, but the plucky editor persevered amid all of the discouragements that were thrown at him and at least until he could find a purchaser and which he eventually did in a man by the name of Mr. Walker. Comparatively, few new settlers were added to the population in 1837, and many of those who had been considered permanent fixtures returned to their old homes in the east. The effect of this breakdown of the wild speculation of the preceding year began to be seen. So there had been a little bit of a land speculation going on in this village of Grand Rapids, and some of the people would bail out before the prospects or value of their land went up as expected. And that was probably common in a lot of communities across southwest Michigan. I've seen that in um, a lot of places where they would plat a village and there'd be a lot of land speculation about the value of the lots. And some villages really never made it, you know, because of that. People would just uh, move on to another place. Either they continued heading west or they bailed out and went back east from where they were, considering their venture to the wilderness of failure. But despite this, Grand Rapids endured. 1831, the Eagle Hotel was built on the corner of Waterloo and Lewis Streets. In 1836, Darius Windsor, having been appointed the postmaster, removed the post office to his house on the east side of the river, which would have been in the old Aldrich building on the corner of Ottawa and Fountain Street. And starting in 1837, the mail was brought from Battle Creek by Old Stage on an old cumbersome lumber wagon carrying passengers as well as mail. Twelve hours were allowed for the trip each way by the government, and the only excuse for delay being bad weather, which frequently occasioned delays of one or two days. The Grand River Bank had been opened, and it was in operation by this time. So now they've got shipping coming up the Grand River, and this was adding to the commerce of the area of Grand Rapids. And finally, the following year, an act incorporating the village of Grand Rapids was approved by the governor on April 5th, 1838, which provided for the organization of all of the tract of land in Kent County, beginning at a point on the east side of the river where Fulton Street as laid out on the original plat of the village. And so the establishment of being incorporated as a village was a very big deal for these early settlements. And the first village election was held at the courthouse on Monday, May 1st, 1838, and the highest number of votes was cast for Lewis Campau 
as the trustee of the village, and he received 141 votes. Village bylaws were adopted that very same month. Among the provisions were prohibitions of horse racing, of discharging firearms, and of ball alleys or gaming houses within the village, also of the selling of liquor at retail, except by licensed tavern keepers. So those were the, some of the early provisions and prohibitions that they provided in their first village meetings. And there's an interesting note here about the winter of 1842 to 1843. It said, in that winter, it was an uncommonly severe one. The snow began falling around November 15th, and it remained until April 17th. During the terrible winter, the supply of food for man and beast was entirely inadequate. Teams were dispatched south for pork, grain, and straw, taking land plaster in shingles to pay for their articles required. But despite the utmost exertions, large numbers of cattle perished for want of food and shelter. This year, the renting of pews in churches was begun as a means of raising much of the needed funds, as it was found that the experiment was a success. This year, The making of buggies was also begun. The first one was made by W.N. Cook, who did all the work by hand from elliptical springs to the cushions. So that's just an interesting note about the winter of 1842 to 1843. And in 1843, a stage line was put in operation between Grand Rapids and Battle Creek, making two trips a week. Lines were started operating between Grand Rapids and Ionia and Lyons, with one trip a week. So now they're getting their, basically their transportation lines between outlying cities. And this also made it for easier access to deliver mail and of course travel between the different towns. And supplies to a greater lesser degree were brought in on stagecoach when needed. In 1844 occurred the first fire of serious consequence in the village of Grand Rapids, where the courthouse and jail burned down. And so this attracted the attention of people in the city that they needed to build a better protection against fire. And so a small building was erected to replace the burned building. And that same year, amendments were made by the bylaws of the village and licenses were authorized uh, to establish their first fire department uh, and purchase equipment for the village. And a lot of those early fire department equipment were hand pump engines and things like that. And there's quite a bit of history with that in the various communities with their volunteer fire departments. But that's going to conclude today's episode. I just wanted to kind of give you a cursory review of some of the early days of Grand Rapids and tell you some of the stories that I found in A History of Kent County, which was Volume 3 of Historic Michigan, Land of the Great Lakes. And a lot of fascinating details about the early settlers in this book. Um, If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And my new book, Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, is officially released on March 11th. 
Now, you can pre-order now on Amazon, or you can order a copy directly from me at michaeldelaware.com, and I just received my shipment, which is kind of exciting. So I'll be able to ship those out within a day or so of you placing your order on my website if you want to start reading it before the release date. And I would encourage you to do that if you can, or if you know me and are planning on seeing me around town, ask me to... uh, bring you a copy of the book and I'll sell one to you because I'm trying to get a few readers to read it before the release date so that when the day of the release happens, reviews can be posted on Amazon to help uh, bolster my book sale. And that's how you help out authors when they're coming out with new books. And so it's kind of a win-win for everybody. You get to read the story before the bulk of the people out there are going to have access to the book. And it gives you a chance to... uh, peruse through the stories. There's 17 true crime stories uh, from Southwest Michigan. A lot of them are from Calhoun County because that's where I'm based out of. So I really hope that you will enjoy the book. I hope you'll uh, reach out to me and get a copy of the book. If you know me and just want to message me, you can find me on Facebook at uh, Michael Delaware Author. You can message me there or if you want to message me on Instagram at Michigan History Guy, you can do so as well. Or if you know me on Facebook and are friends with me on the regular part of Facebook, just message me and uh, I'll be happy to meet up with you somewhere around town and get you a copy of the book. So that'll be a lot of fun to have a lot of people reading the book before the release date, if that's uh, something you guys would like to do. If not, my first speaking event is on March 14th. It's a Thursday night, I believe, at the Willard Library. And you can find all that information on my website at michaeldelaware.com. Check out my calendar. I've got a lot of speaking engagements all over Southwest Michigan. So I hope you you will come out there as well and uh, hear some of the stories. Maybe get a copy of the book that way. So until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.